There's got to be an explanation to all these UFO sightings, right? Hey, it's Stephen Diener, host of the Unidentified Alien Podcast. And whether you're new to the conversation or have been looking into it for years, you need to check out the fastest growing alien show out there, the Unidentified Alien Podcast, or UAP for short. There's a crazy amount of alien encounter stories out there from all over the world. And the beauty of it is that I bring them all to you and let you decide what you believe. Download and subscribe to UAP on any of the major podcasting platforms. And you can also find it on UAPpodcast.com. It's Thursday, September 1st. From inside the WTOP newsroom, this is the DMV Download, brought to you by the men and women of Steamfitters Local 602. Get an estimate and learn more at steamfitters-602.org. The man who some consider a public safety patriarch in our area, Tom Manger, just finished his first year as chief of U.S. Capitol Police. He took the job in the wake of the January 6th insurrection, when questions of the security of our democracy and of our city were at their height. WTOP's Dick Giuliano sat down with the chief and shares his interview. How has the security posture changed post-January 6th? Not only are we gathering information much better than we did, but we're disseminating it the way it should be disseminated, neither of which was being done on January 6th that is being done today. Among the changes ahead, Chief Manger says he wants Capitol Police to wear cameras. He hopes to launch a body-worn camera program on an incredibly secure and sensitive campus where high-profile people may not want to be on tape. This is a different sort of community than, you know, a residential community where, you know, you've got, you know, they want that accountability from their police. It's a little different here. Thanks for joining us. I'm Megan Cloherty. And I'm Luke Garrett. There's a lot on the U.S. Capitol Police Chief's mind beyond the security questions that revolve around January 6th. He told our Dick Giuliano what his first year overseeing a federal force was like and the challenges it still faces as he works to rebuild a department that significantly thinned out following the insurrection. Dick met with Manger in his office on Capitol Hill and starts the conversation by asking the chief to reflect on his first year leading Capitol Police. So, Chief, did you have goals that you set out in the past year? that you wanted to reach and did you get there? And, and and was there anything that surprised you about your first year on this job? It has to be different from what you've done. Well, the, the job is is uh, is unique in many ways and, and um, it's, it's very different than the job I did uh, in Montgomery County and in Fairfax County as the chief in those jurisdictions. Uh, our mission here is to protect the members of Congress, protect the Capitol, protect the legislative process. And so, you know, my community, um, in a in a large way, my community goes home at the end of the day. Um, unlike the the other jobs I've had, where you're delivering police service 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Well, we're still doing that here, and we certainly have the Capitol Hill community that we um, feel um, uh, very close to. But the job is different. Um, and and in terms of of goals that I had when I got here, um, I had the advantage of of looking at um, a, a number of reports that had been done post-January 6th about things that needed to be fixed. You know, here's, here's the failures that occurred on January 6th, and um, here's a roadmap in, in what needs to be done to improve them. So I had that advantage when I got here. So I knew what needed to be done, um, but it was just a matter of getting it done. And I, I have great folks here that I work with, and so the three big things that I wanted to accomplish um, were to uh, get our intelligence operation where it needed to be, get our operational planning 
up to par and uh, comprehensive enough so that no matter if we had a big event or a small event, that we were ready for whatever happened. Um, and then the staffing issues. You know, we had a great exodus after January 6th. A lot of folks retired. A lot of folks just left because they, for a lot of different reasons. And so we needed to get staffing back to where it needed to be. Um, still working on that, but we've made a lot of progress um, in terms of our staffing. So um, those, those were the big things that, that I needed to accomplish. Can you tell us where the staffing stands? Yeah, we're, um, we're probably 200 under where we are authorized to be, but we're in a lot better shape today than we were uh, a year ago. How has the security posture changed post January 6th that, you know, affords a little more security and allows for, you know, a, a better and swifter response? Well, I think that a lot of that has to do with our intelligence operation and the fact that we are um, partnering with our allied agencies, that we have folks in different task forces, um, that we have daily intelligence briefings so that the information, not only are we gathering information much better than we did, but we're disseminating it the way it should be disseminated, neither of which was being done at the level, uh, you know, on January 6th that it's being done today. So our security posture is based on that intelligence. It's based on our ability to respond to threats, all of which has been improved uh, over the past year. As I recall the after-action review, that there were lag times uh, that the chief had then in enabling uh, some of his, his response because he had to go to the, the House Sergeant-at-Arms, the Senate Sergeant-at-Arms. They had to get in touch with the House leadership. They've got to get in touch with the Senate leadership. You can't change that. And I would imagine that the command structure has got to be different than what you're used to. Can it be more nimble given the political structure? So. Look, if, if I were the king of the world, there would be a lot of things that would be different in terms of uh, the uh, oversight uh, of the police department um, here at the Capitol. But things are in better shape today than they were on January 6th. Congress actually has changed the law that gives me the authority to make certain decisions that the previous chief did not have the authority to make. I'm working with a, a Capitol Police Board, the two sergeant of arms and the architect of the Capitol. The, certainly the two sergeant of arms are new to those positions and we all understand that we need to work as a team to recover from January 6th and I think that um, the, the four of us, the architect and the two sergeant of arms and myself, understand that we are invested in the success of the board. That's, uh, if you talk to previous chiefs, they would have a, a different narrative, uh, you know, in terms of, of what they were dealing with when they were chief. But I am very pleased with the board that I'm working with, and we're getting a lot accomplished. That's good news. It sounds like you, you're saying things have changed. You know? And in fact, before I took this job, I spoke to um, three, diff three friends of mine who, who had been at one point in their career uh, police chiefs here at the Capitol. And all three had some pretty difficult uh, challenges in terms of trying to run the department and get things done, uh, either with the oversight committees or with the, um, with the board, uh, I have not had those issues. And you went in with your eyes wide open, apparently. I did. I did. And, and, uh, and I think that that helped in terms of building the relationships right from the start 
to make sure that um, folks had the, the confidence that if I said, look, this is the plan, this is what we want to get accomplished, that people had confidence that, that in fact, this was a, a good way to, for the police department to go. And so I've had a fair amount of success in terms of getting things in the budget and being able to make some of the changes that I've needed to make. So, I, I, again, I think I'm in a, in a good position. That's great. Uh, let me ask you, what, what is your level of concern about the, the current threat environment to uh, lawmakers in light of the midterms coming up? Uh, what can you share with us about that, and particularly you know, with you know, potential protections in the home districts and so forth? So we, we continue to work with every member of Congress uh, in terms of, of supporting their activities, both here in D.C. and their home offices. We've got great relationships with the state and local police departments around the country where if we call them and say, you know, um, a member's got an event, uh, can you assist? Um, we, we typically are able to get the assistance that we need. So we've got things in place to ensure that when the members are out and about, they, they have some level of security. So it's difficult because there's so many members of Congress some members obviously don't have the high-profile um, issues that some other members have, but we try and give everybody the best advice we can in terms of helping them keep they and their families safe. And can you talk any more about any uh, uptick in upgrades and security you've had on the Hill? Well, we, of course, I'm, I'm uh, very hesitant to share, you know, yeah. some of our, you know, uh, you know, our security, our security plans. However, um, we are uh, getting our staffing back to where we would like it to be, so we're able to post people um, at, at particular places. You know, we've, we're reopening the campus. We're, uh, we, we have reopened the campus, and we're going to continue to reopen it more and more in terms of more tours, more, um, you know, more folks will be in and out of the building. But, I, you know, I think it looks like we're back to normal now. I mean, when I walk across the plaza, um, there's always hundreds of people there, um, you know, either taking tours or just, you know, walking around the Capitol. And um, so uh, we are trying to make sure that we uh, not only uh, get back to a point where we have adequate staffing for all the posts and, you know, to provide all the protection details and, you know, folks to follow up on threats and that sort of thing. But um, we also have uh, additional tactics that we have put into place so that um, we can be aware of threats before they reach the Capitol. Yeah. I remember I learned so much from you about the value of body-worn cameras. And uh, what are your thoughts as you sit in this position? And I mean, I would imagine you wish your your officers here had them and and, and the whole fed, all the federal officers many of them lack uh, body-worn cameras and I guess the research is clear we've seen what a useful tool this is I remember you you saying a, a long time ago that we would see reductions in, for example use of force complaints against officers and we've had we have mm -hmm. and so what, what are your thoughts about US Capitol Police and body-worn cameras and, and other federal officers. So, as, as you know, I'm, I'm a big believer in body-worn cameras. I, I um, uh, brought them to Montgomery County, um, I guess now it's about seven years ago, um, and I wanted to do the same thing here. Uh, I, I think that 
um, they're they're um, really valuable in terms of uh, accountability, and uh, they're valuable in terms of our officers who do a I think do a phenomenal job here, and um, uh, this will just show the the community um, just how challenged challenging this job can be and how um, good my cops are at, at doing it. And so I'm a big believer that it helps the police out much more than it would, would harm them. And uh, so we ha have, uh, we're planning to do a pilot program to uh, put body-worn cameras on uh, a number of officers who, who would be on posts outside, um, outside the buildings, not not on an interior post, but the, the, we have a lot of officers that are posted outside um, that have direct contact with the public. And what I'd like to do is do a pilot program and put uh, body-worn cameras on those officers. And uh, uh, but my hope is that we can convince you know everybody here that it's a good thing. This is a different sort of community than um, one where someone you know a residential community where you know you've got. Uh, folks who live in a particular community and and feel like um, that you know they want that accountability from their police it's a little different here and so um, I still think there's benefits to the body worn cameras and and so um, I've, I've uh, my hope is that we can get the pilot uh, going um, hopefully we get some what we the funding we need in the FY23 budget which would just be a couple months away and uh, we could get get it started. When do you want to do that? This this year, you mean? Yes. Uh, well, this upcoming year. Yeah. You talking about in the spring or in the winter? Or? Yeah. Um, I, we've done we've done a fair amount of um, work already, so I don't think it'll take us forever to decide what kind of cameras to get, and you know we'll put a policy together and and um, we'll uh, uh, work with the FOP to um, uh, to get you know make sure that everybody's on the same page, and so my hope is that um, certainly. In the next year, we get it going. Okay, how many officers do you think in the pilot program? You know, um, if I if I was able to start off, you know, I'll, I'll tell you the pilot program I started off in uh, Montgomery County. I was ready to start it with um, uh, 15 officers. Uh, now, as it turns out, I got I think close to 80 or 90 volunteers that said no, we want to be part of the pilot. So, I was able to get a lot more out here. So, I, I'd be satisfied if I got 20, 25, 30 cameras out. Uh, it would be good. It would be enough for us to, I think, show um, the oversight committees and show the Capitol Police Board the value in the cameras, and uh, hopefully then we could expand the program. Have you shared your view with the members, your, your favor of uh, body-worn cameras? Have you been asked to testify? Have you testified for the legislation? I don't think I've testified publicly, but I've had meetings with the oversight committees. I have uh, meetings with oversight committees every month, and um, I know that they are aware that I'd like to move forward with this initiative. Mm -hmm. So getting back to your roots, by the way, I know that you came out of University of Maryland and then you went to Fairfax as a patrol officer. That's correct. So, I mean, you have seen, you have had to have seen so much change over the years in policing. And what are your thoughts uh, when you look over the changes from when you came up? I'm sure some things have improved and perhaps some things have not. I don't know. What, do you, what is your take on the new challenges that are facing officers these days, problems with recruiting? people struggling for the job. I mean, there just seems to be so many changes. There, there have been. And, and you know, I, I first um, uh, was a police officer um, back in 1976, and then I started with Fairfax in 1977. And um, Police are better trained 
today than they've ever been. There, there's more accountability than there's ever been before. Um, we do a better job at selecting the right people to be police officers. Um, I can recall when I first came on in the mid-70s that um, I would go to roll call and I'd hear some of the discussions, some of the things that people said, and I remember thinking to myself, why in the world are you doing this job? You, you seem to not like people. You complain about everything, you know, every, every time you have to do anything, you complain about it. If you're not happy, get another job. And um, what, what I realized uh, later in my career is that there were, in fact, a lot of people that were hired and, and were uh, police officers that really weren't suited to be police officers. We do a much better job. It's not perfect. We're still recruiting from the human race. But you, there's a, cops are, are much, uh, they do a lot better job at selecting the right people for the job. But despite the fact that we're the better trained than we've ever been, more accountable than we've ever been, um, and I think uh, we're hiring better people than we ever have before, there's still challenges. You, we, there's still a lot of um, mistrust in the community. There's people that don't have confidence in the police, and that's up to uh, the folks that are starting in this profession and, and the, 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 you know, the chiefs around the country to uh, earn the confidence of the people that, that they're serving. And um, you can only do that by um, showing, uh, you know, that you are well-intended in, in everything that you do. Um, it, you can only do that by owning up to mistakes that you make and, and showing the, the, the public how you're going to fix these, these problems that you have. Um, but, you know, on the, other, on the other side of it, the public has to understand that police are never going to be perfect any more than any profession is going to be perfect. But if, if we ever get to a point where the public believes that the police, in fact, are well-intended in everything they do, and that when something bad happens, it's the exception, you know, um, that's when I think the police will be able to say, we're where we, you know, we're where we want to be. But but we, we've got a ways to go before we get there. Yeah, I would imagine you'd be optimistic enough that the attitudes can be changed. I mean, I guess coming back from, for example, Vietnam, soldiers were were demeaned and, and then that seemed to change. Do you see public attitudes changing over the years? It's a pendulum. Uh, you know, they're, they're um, uh, remember right after 9-11, um, public safety was revered and um, so I think the pendulum goes back and forth, but, um, you know, again, it's up to the police departments to make sure that they're putting the right people out there and hold them accountable and making sure they're doing the job the way it's supposed to be done. If we can do that and do it with, with um, uh, consistency, we'll be able to earn back that trust. I'm, I'm confident. I did want to ask you, I want to get in, the neighbors, you know, and the fencing. What do you want to tell the people on the Hill and Capitol Hill East? about the future and security and how quickly it goes up and your ability to communicate information to them. So um, we have, I'm very proud of our, our social media footprint that we have, uh, uh, we put information out to the folks that live on, in the Capitol Hill area uh, in real time. So when something happens, we put something out so that they know what's going on here. I also am like the people that live here, I'm anti-fence. So I would not put that fence up unless it was absolutely necessary. And I hope it never becomes necessary again. But, I mean, it's, it's always an option. And, but um, I understand the impact it has on this community. People feel like this is, this is their house. This is their property. They like to run. They like to walk their dogs. You know, 
uh, the, just the people that live around here use this property for exercise, for relaxation, and my God, it's such a beautiful site um, and so inspiring. You know, no one wants to see the fence around here. So I understand that, and I'm trying to, I am hopefully uh, putting uh, enough, uh, you asked about our security posture. I hope that uh, our security posture is such that we wouldn't ever have to put that fence up again. So, so I would certainly um, not put it up unless there were um, absolutely um, compelling reasons to do it. Oh. And, and you, I, you started as an officer at the beach, right? Did you start at the I beach? did. I was a okay. summer cop. At, I was summer cop in Ocean City uh, okay. back in 1976. So, so from there to, to Fairfax, Montgomery, is this kind of a capstone? I mean, to be the chief of a capstone? Dick, this, Dick, this better be my last damn job. I, I, uh, that's what I'm hoping. Um, I've, uh, I've got 43 years as a police officer, and um, I, am, uh, I hope that this is my last job. But this certainly is um, something that I'm very proud of, and I'm very glad to be here. You know, there's still some things to be done, but um, I'm going to stick around long enough to make sure we, we get the, those things done. But uh, for right now, I'm, I am enjoying what I'm doing, and I think it's important work, and I'm, I'm very pleased to be here. We want to thank Dick Giuliano for his interview uh, with Chief Tom Manger, who, by the way, like he worked for Fairfax. He worked for Montgomery. I just feel like we have worked with him for so many years. Right. And he was with Major Chiefs as well, which is like an organization of all of the chiefs in Mm. the U.S. Um, He's just a very, first of all, a very kind person. But it's interesting to see how he has changed, like his career has changed so much from going, you know, like we used to meet him in Rockville and now he's on the hill. It's just this whole evolution for him has been really cool to watch. Right, and he really came out of retirement to take this head job at the Capitol, which also speaks to his character. Yeah. Um, so coming up for you guys, we have a guest coming in, and we're going to do a little DMV date action. The hint is dates really lead to open doors. Ooh, stick around. Backed by the experience of its hardworking members, Steamfitters Local 602 is ready to take on your next commercial heating, cooling, HVAC, or refrigeration project. Steamfitters Local 602 adds value to our community through its partnerships with local contractors and building owners, all while keeping the focus on improving the lives of its members and their families throughout the DMV. For work that's on time and on budget, go to steamfitters-602.org to schedule your next project. That's steamfitters-602.org. Steamfitters Local 602, changing lives. Thanks for listening to the DMV Download. If you like this show, give us five stars and leave us a review on Apple Podcast. We love hearing from you guys, and your reviews really do help other listeners find this, our area's only in-depth daily local news podcast. And thank you for making us a part of your day. And before we go, we have this week's installment of DMV Dates. And here with us is Jacob Kerr. Howdy. He is the master of audio editing here at WTOP, and uh, welcome to the show. Oh, I really appreciate it. That is a high compliment. I don't know (laughs) if I'm a a master. Boom. Well, I'm going to go ahead and share my date idea. So this one circulates around the DuPont Circle area, and it starts off in a place called O Street Mansion. Now, you can Google this place up. It's on O Street, just a couple blocks from the DuPont Circle itself. And it's a great place to take a date because there's this thing called a secret door experience. So a little background here. The O Street Mansion was built by the architect for the U.S. Capitol. He installed all these secret doors. So it's kind of fun, kind of mystical little place to go on a date. It is $26 per person. So it's a little steep, 
but you know you can spend three hours there, have a good time. After you do that, you then walk on over to Zorba's Cafe, which is like four blocks away. And um, I'm actually going to suggest menu items for this. Oh, wow. Yeah. Well, so, uh, well, What if you lose your date in the O Street Mansion? Well, you, know, there's, you said there's all these doors. <laughs> Honestly, Jacob, have you been there? Because that's a total possibility. <laughs> no. I mean, I, I people have told me to go, but I've never actually done it. You should but. keep your cell phones handy. That's that's definitely a, yeah. a, a suggestion. But that would uh, cut down on the menu cost for uh, <laughs> for dinner. <laughs> that's true. It would defeat the purpose, though. So hopefully <laughs> you make it to Zorba's. <laughs> I would suggest ordering the veggie platter and shish kebabs. That comes out to like 40 bucks. So we're looking at like total between the two people, an $80 date. So a little steeper than usual, but still a pretty fun time. All right. Well, I used to live up in the Columbia Heights Parkview area. It's a little, it's a little different, a little different vibe. But anyway, we're gonna go start at Sonny's Pizza. Mmm. Yeah, it's uh, a little pizza joint that opened. Uh, I can't remember a few years ago. The pandemic time. It's just can't remember. Before times. Yes. You know, I think that pizza should be round. <laughs> they disagree. Oh. But you know what? They do a good job, so it, it's okay. All right. Boom. Square pizza. It is. Yeah. Square pizza. Uh, you know, a slice costs uh, four fifty. Oh, I like the sound of that. Yeah. yeah. I mean, whole pies are more in the 25, 35 range. So if you're really hungry, you can shell out. Right. You know? So after that, we're going to walk on down over to the Wonderland Ballroom. Whoa. Have you been to the Wonderland Ballroom? No, but I want to. It sounds wonderful. Oh, yeah. Well, when I moved to D.C., it was like where all the uh, the young single 20-somethings went. Okay. Uh, you know, if you didn't have a date, then sometimes you could find one in the Wonderland Ballroom. There's a bar in the bottom, which is cool and all. But then, you know, around midnight, if you go upstairs, it's a very, very small, crowded dance floor, very little AC. It's like sweat lodge up there, you know? Like, <laughs> but people crazy. are dancing. But people are dan- like people are dancing into each other. Wow. There's no room. Wow. There's All right. no room. They're singing songs from like our childhood, you know, like 2000s. Wow. You know, what, like, like the Shrek soundtrack or something like that? Sure. I mean, uh, you know, they, they dropped the, the Fallout Boy, you know, Sugar, We're Going Down Swing. You know, this bar is for people our age. Boom. I love to but, hear it. Yeah. You can get beer pretty cheap at uh, the Wonderland Ballroom if you want to keep the drinks going. So nice. It's a, all in all, it's it's not too expensive of a date up there. Wow. All right. Well, we got two options for y'all out there. Kind of a spendy DuPont little little stroll and then uh, kind of a, a nice pizza, cheese, and dancing date up in Columbia Heights. That, that, that's what we love. We got you covered. Okay. I'm back, and I would just like to say... That, first of all, no, I want to thank Jacob for coming on. But you can be, you know, a little older and go to the Wonderland Ballroom. Just saying. You can be what? A little older. Yes. Well, we didn't even establish our ages, so it's really, whatever your age is, you're down. I mean, we're just (laughs) ageless people here on the mic. Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. I don't want to be ageist at all. I want everyone to feel included. Oh, yeah. Mostly me, so I don't feel old. Megan, you are included. And that'll do it for us today on the DMV Download, sponsored by Steamfitters Local 602. Our managing editor is Craig Schwab, and our music is by Real World. Give us a review and rate our show if you get the chance. Also, while you're at it, hit subscribe so you never miss an episode. You can also follow us on every social media platform out there where we post content every day. You can find out more about this podcast and become one of our VIP listeners at dmvdownload.com. The DMV Download is a podcast by WTOP News. Listen on 103.5 FM in the D.C. area, 107.7 FM in Virginia, 103.9 FM in Frederick, online at WTOP.com and on the WTOP News app. I'm taking a long weekend, so have a good long weekend, everybody. 